Hello everyone, my name is Jet Tattersall and welcome to the Women in Pop podcast. It is an absolute joy to be back with you again. Before we launch into today's show, a reminder that the latest issue of Women in Pop magazine is on sale right now with the legendary Madonna on the front cover. Inside across 12 glorious pages, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of her incredible music career and look back at her many, many highlights. Uh, we also have interviews with Tate McRae, Dove Cameron, Nena Cherry, Meg Mack and Charlie Collins. Plus, we take a deep dive into the music of Janet Jackson. You can buy your copy now at womeninpop.com forward slash subscribe or at a news agency near you. Now, on to today's guest. She grew up in locations across the world, including London, New York, Australia and Bali, and was just surrounded by music and musicians and kind of lived the dream that we all fantasise about when we're small. She taught herself to write songs and released her first single, Mid Global Collapse, in 2021. She creates the most delicious pop songs and they are injected with a bit of rock bit of indie, bit of electronica, and they also sound so incredibly polished and assured and just downright incredible. She has released, just now, her new single, Six Foot Baby, which is hands down off the charts amazing, and she is here to tell us all about it. It is, of course, the wonderful Mulholland. Mulholland, welcome to Women in Pop. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here and to talk to you. Absolutely gorgeous. I want to play Six Foot Baby. I'm going to do that right now. You go for it. my god now you have dealt with like one hell of an unraveling <laughs> from a six foot baby in your life um and you've written a great song about it yeah talk oh, yeah. to me about this beast yeah he was it is quite a beast isn't it it was i'm glad it's worth the trauma looking back at it now i do listen to the song and i'm like it was you know a little bit it was definitely it makes it okay that i wrote that song it kind of makes it feel worth it it was just really traumatic i think i'd been through a breakup before and it felt very mediocre compared to this one like this kind of it almost took over my whole life I was living with this guy and I had a dog with him and he was part of my family and it happened so quickly he just came home one day and broke up with me and didn't explain it his mum picked up all of his stuff hence the six foot baby line he was still a baby and and then he wrote me an email explaining why he broke up with me and all these things that were wrong with me which you know it's I I get it actually no I don't get it no. no, no one gets a list. <laughs> no one gets a list. Yeah, he couldn't even explain it when he broke up with me. And I got the email the day I wrote this song. Oh, my God. Now, the greatest thing about this song is obviously we're hearing the rage and we're hearing the frustration. But there's just so much comedy in it as well. And I, I believe that everything has to be funny. Otherwise, it's wildly depressing. I agree. I agree with that completely. It's like, you you know, you see these videos that have dark humor on the internet now, and I cannot stop myself from laughing. Like, I, I, the world has so much bad in it now that you just need to find the humor in it, it feels like, and it makes it feel okay, if you know what I mean. Like, if you can't laugh at it, then what are you going to do? 
what was the moment? Was it when the email of your um, your failings? Was it when that arrived that you went, okay, this is a story? I think that just the breakup in itself, like how childish it felt. It felt so young and I felt like it was so not a reflection of our relationship that it almost felt like a joke. Like I I felt the whole thing felt like a complete joke. And the guy I was writing the song with, he just started singing the first line of the, the first verse and we wrote the song within an hour. Amazing. It was the best feeling. It's my favorite song I've ever written. And you've now given people the greatest breakup song. That's, you know, I wish that I had, I did have something like I I listened to ABCDEFU and that felt like this to me. I was just screaming it in my car. I had a lot of rage for a very long time. Yeah, probably like I'd say six months of just pure rage. And also the fact that you can also scream your own song in your car because I quite I love hearing from artists that they'll love the song but they have to take a break. So like, no, I can't feel like that. Be like, no, this means something because I'm still screaming along to these lyrics. Hundred percent. I still listen to it and I still am like, damn, it's a great song. <laughs> That's what we need more of. Exactly. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm really, really proud of this and proud of the storytelling in it, and it paints a really good picture. You know, it's like the joke, but also the pain, like they come hand in hand. And I find that hard to do sometimes. I find it hard to tell stories and make it funny, but also make it real. Because, you know, you use humor to deflect from situations and from the pain of things, you know, you'll talk about trauma and you'll throw a joke in there and it kind of twists it up a little bit. But I feel like this has such a strong storyline that is both funny and real. And I like that. Beautiful. Now, there is even a funnier twist to this story. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, because in March this year, you released this beautiful thing called Foreign Obstacles. No, it is a beautiful song. It yeah. is a beautiful song yeah. about falling in love in this terrifying, exciting time. However, the protagonist of this story, or no, sorry, the catalyst of this story, the protagonist of the story is our six-foot baby. Yes. Yes. No, it uh, was meant to come out the month after we broke up. And I wrote it, I'd say, about four months into our relationship and it was like our anthem he loved it his dad would listen to it and call me and tell me it was his favorite song he'd ever heard and we had this whole music video mapped out and it was the storyline of our relationship and he went and ruined it (laughs) no he didn't but he, he broke up with me and I was like well you know I called Sony and I was like I think can we hold off for a few months maybe I just need to reevaluate and I did the song was still good even though he wasn't in the picture the music's still good without him there. So we released it. We did a music video with a very attractive man, and it was a great time. I loved it. I had a ball. And the good thing is now the Six Foot Baby has two songs and, and a video he can look at and go, hmm. It could have been him. <laughs> could have been him. <laughs> That's the next one. I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is gold. You also recently covered 
like in these I Follow Rivers, which is just so, so beautiful. And I'm going to play a wedge of that now. Such a great song. And I know we talked about you growing up globally in these sort of dream locations all around the world. But rumour has it, Chrissy Amphlett of the Divinals also taught you how to sing I Touch Myself. She did. To give my, She said this will give your dad a heart attack. Just sing it to him before bedtime. And I did. It was my lullaby. I love myself. I want you to love me. It was... Yeah, it was definitely a highlight of my childhood. It was very funny looking back at it. And when I tell people that story, no one believes me. But I was tone deaf and she kind of taught me how to sing a little bit. And yeah, she was just, she was like my fairy godmother. I love her. What an amazing, amazing fairy godmother to have. And I want to know, I mean, this destroyed your father momentarily. You know, hearing his five-year-old. I think he thought it was funny. He's got the best, he just... He would have just found it, like, the. I think he has a video of it somewhere, somewhere in the depths of our past. But, no, he, I think my mum was more mortified. My mum was definitely a little bit traumatised from the whole experience. But he just laughed and was like, yeah, Gracie, sing it. And that was it. <laughs> Being that, we've just got I Follow Rivers. I mean, I'm waiting to see, are you going to do a cover? Are we going to do the cover as Grain Mulholland? I, so I have played it live as a cover. Um, kind of as a tribute to her. But honestly, I haven't... It feels very personal to me, that song, and I don't... I like sharing it live and having it as an experience. And I think I just like focusing on that for the moment. But um, you never know. It's actually a great idea. I haven't really thought about that. It's a, it's a great story and a great idea. And you can always shout out, this one's for you, Chrissy and Dad. Very true. <laughs> very true. I want to now talk about your very deeply dark cinematic debut because... Uh, it's a beautiful song, but it's also an interesting choice for a debut going into pop because it's got this very folky, almost rock country feel to it. So this is 83. Yeah, talk to me about this track. So this was probably, I think, the fifth song I'd ever written in a studio. Maybe maybe sixth. It was the third song I'd ever written in Australia. So I'd spent a year in London learning how to write, not really writing properly, but just getting the hang of it, kind of. And I came back, got a manager, and I came for a writing trip in Sydney. And I met Locke Bustock, who I have actually done every single song that I've released with. And this was the first day we'd spent together. And it was the first session I'd ever done where we didn't listen to references. So we didn't play other music. We didn't go off someone else's vibe. We just did what felt right for us. And he just started playing it. 
And I had written the first verse in the Uber on the way there. And we wrote the song in two hours. And 83, I just started singing 83 completely out of the blue. I didn't really understand it, but it felt so natural. And then I was like, can you just look up Highway 83? And we found out it was a highway that runs straight through America. And so we we played off that and turned it into this storyline of these two, like Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing where they go down and, you know, this one of them freaks out and it says it kind of has the storyline in the video. But it was, yeah, it was one of the easiest songs I've ever written. But also when I write with Locke, it's so easy. It feels so natural, which I love and I really appreciate. It's really beautiful. And obviously you really slip into character with this one where we, I guess there's toyings of it in your other releases, but this one, it's definitely here's a story. Yeah. Which I think is incredible. You said that you were tone deaf as a child and I'm wondering how you became who you are now because you're definitely not tone deaf and you just sung for us live. So (laughs) I don't believe that people are just born with it. I think you can teach yourself how to sing because I sang every day. I was terrible, but I just did it all day, every day in the house, in the car, at school. I used to, I've never actually told this story. I used to release, put like covers on YouTube of me singing Justin Bieber songs when I was 11. And people would comment on it like rip, like R.I.P. But I was a little surfy kid. So I thought they were saying ripping, like, oh, you're ripping. (laughs) And so I had all these people like kind of bullying me on the internet. But I just, it encouraged me in some really, really weird way. And I just kept going. And then I went to 12 schools. My 12th school I went to was a Steiner school. And my music teacher heard me singing in a room by myself and she made me do a talent show and I did well and then I just didn't stop. And you I, ripped it? I ripped it. I was ripping, someone say. <laughs> what did you sing? Um, I sang Valerie by Amy Winehouse. You've got to rip that song. Yeah. That's some, you know, you went for Bieber and Winehouse. Like that's. <laughs> I know, I really pushed myself, didn't I? But no... Amy Winehouse was great. Bieber, not so much. Those videos have been erased from the internet. Thank God. There's always a place for shame. Like yeah, That's true. That's very true. Mine just was on the internet. <laughs> it only, I only found them like a couple months ago, I think. And I freaked out. Yeah, and I deleted them. Or I hit them. What? I mean, this, it's a thing that we do now. Like hey, what do you think? And we put it out to these, these sort of faceless masses. And obviously... We're always looking at artists doing it, particularly we like to like go, oh, I love your songs. I want to see your YouTube covers. I want to see you when you're younger doing this. And But we're seeing these videos from before you became, I guess, this recognized person, singer-songwriter you are now. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is it when you're first experimenting with creating music and finding your voice? What is it about that faceless audience that that works and encourages? I honestly, I haven't really thought about it like that. I think for me, it was more having the belief of the people closest to me that pushed me forward. Like I, my parents were so supportive and, you know, I had a family member ask me once, what's your plan B? Because you're not going to make it. You're just going to be a waitress until you're 35. And my dad nearly flipped a table in a restaurant. He was so angry and he never, ever lets me doubt myself and neither does my mum. And so I never really thought of anyone past my inner circle. I just, if my parents loved it and my sisters loved it and my little brother, he's my biggest fan, and my team, then I made, you know, I 
done right by them. And then that was what was most important to me and still is, honestly. If five people like my song, if 5,000 people like my song, if it just gets through to that one person, then that is the most important thing to me. Gorgeous. And how did you get from um, ripping it at the talent show to where you are today? Funnily enough, my dad had a hand in a documentary at around that time. And I'd started playing ukulele and writing songs. And the cinematographer from his documentary, his sister is my A&R now. And so my dad got her number. I think he hijacked his phone, the cinematographer's phone, and put it on his and just sent her email after email and video after video. And she stayed in touch from, from when I was about 15, 16 until she signed me at 19. And she just was – she's one of the best people I know. I love her so much. And I love – I've lucked out so much with my team Every single person I've worked with within Sony and my management group, not one person could I say one bad word about. And so I think that definitely helped it just elevate in its organic way because it's, you know, it just felt so natural. Like everyone that joined the team, signing felt so, felt very weird, honestly, because it was in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. We'd gone into lockdown about three months before, before we got the deal and my manager, we were in the works before that, before the pandemic. And when it hit, he was like, I'm just warning you, the deal's probably going to disappear for for a while until this blows over. And I think a week after that, we got a letter from Marietta and she was like, I want to sign you. And it was so exciting. And I promised myself I wouldn't sign with the record label unless it was her. And then I did it. So it's very, it was amazing. It wow. is amazing. I love it. That's beautiful. And it's always so nice to hear like, an honest, non-rocky, still hardworking, but non-rocky start. Yeah. Because usually these stories, there's always so much hard work, but a lot of these stories are tainted with some pretty pretty dark corners in there as well. I've been so lucky with my journey. Like every, I actually don't think I've had any bad experiences within the music industry, which is a very, very big call to make and a big thing to say, but I consider myself so lucky. Well, you've, I mean, 83 was such an incredible start and it got such beautiful traction straight away. And it was a real, uh, it was just, it was a proud moment for Australian pop because I find as wonderful as this country is, they make, there's very little room for female pop artists. I agree. Very little room. It means a lot that you say that because I definitely agree with you. It's really tough. It's a really tough industry and category, I'd say. Like, you always have to have your edge and you've got to be looking for the thing that sets you apart from everyone else. And that can be really, really exhausting. But I think it just, you just got to rely on your voice and follow your heart. Have you found that you've been categorized at all? Like, oh, you're like this person or you're like that person? Never. I don't think anyone's ever really compared me. Oh, you're killing it. You're winning already. <laughs> I just can't remember. Maybe they have. But I, I, I compare myself more than anyone. I put myself in a category, but no one really does. I think my production sets my, me apart from other pop artists. And, yeah, I've got Lachlan to thank for that. Also oh, yourself in this story. <laughs> you have been touring 
and you've been performing live and you were recently with the Rubens and then you had your headline show in Sydney and also feature artist at Big Sound. Hi, also hi to music opening up again. It was amazing. It was so crazy meeting all these people that we'd seen come up on the internet like in the last three years because none of us had met each other. There was about, I'd say, seven people that I have developed friendships with but never properly met before. So I was running up to strangers and hugging them and like, you know, smile. it was just so much fun. It was such a good time and such a beautiful moment, I think, for the music industry to have, especially in this country. I loved it. Gorgeous. And how was that? I mean, I must say, even just being at shows now, I feel like we're a better audience. Definitely. Everyone pays a lot of attention. Everyone's really respectful because, you know, we waited so long to get on stage and to show people what we can do and how we present ourselves and how we carry ourselves. And people really respect that. I don't, I had only done probably two shows before COVID. One, two, two, Um, two shows before COVID. And I really didn't like performing. I found it really overwhelming. I found it really scary. And I think only in the last couple of shows, I've really found my footing and a lot of that has to do with the audience and the people that I perform to. Like my big sound show, everyone was there for me and everyone cared. And I thought that was really special and I could feel it in the room and I loved it. Now, so see, you were ripping in front of everyone. It was so <laughs> nice. It was a lot of fun. I had a great, great time. Gorgeous. And I mean, you've got so many facets to your music. Um, you know, we had this dark kind of folk element. We've got comedy and heartbreak and guitars and we've got this joyous pop what other sounds are you looking forward to experimenting with I don't yeah uh, I I love a good ballad and I haven't done one I haven't really released a good sad sad song and I only really listen to sad or angry music so I've done the (laughs) anger I just need to go towards the sad now I write a lot of sad songs it just doesn't it hasn't really stuck yet so I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the right moment. What's your sad song list? Like, what's your sad song playlist? Every liked song I have on my phone. <laughs> Every single I, song. I kid you not, my sister, I have a 15-year-old sister, and she loves, like, Steve Lacey and... Just every, all the cool people, you know, like everyone that's kind of funky, everyone likes them. I just listen to the heartbroken, like fearless Taylor Swift albums and just anything that gets me crying is something that I think is is amazing. I love it's it. It's so good. And there's nothing like miming to a crying song, like not even singing, you know, when you're just belting out and you're like, because I can't hit those notes, Celine, so you're going to do it. You and can I'll do pretend it it's me in my rearview mirror while I sing along. <laughs> Give me some of your sad song, babes. So, Rosalind, the snap. I love that song. That gets me going. What else gets me going? Um, Back to December. Oh, oh. August by Taylor Swift. I was in, after my breakup, it's actually a little bit concerning, I was in the top 1% of her listeners on Spotify. I got an email. I got a notification. So that was, I was like, okay, I need to check myself a little bit. I was just, every time I'd listen to music, I'd cry. So I didn't listen to music for a really long time after my breakup. A really long time. But yes, no. It's too much. Isn't that great that um, Spotify can really go, that's your embarrassing moments of this year. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you Terrifying. thought you were cool, but no. Yeah, okay. pretty much. I was, well, you know what? I'm. When I was younger, I thought I was a bit 
I think everyone was a bit weird about loving Taylor Swift. It was like a love-hate thing. But I just outright love her now. I'll talk about her whenever. I, I don't really care. I think she's one of the most talented women in the industry and has so much respect and has worked so hard for her place and her position. And I think that's so respectable. I you just got to lead into those things. Yeah. And if there was one Taylor Swift song that you would take a turn on? That's big. That's a big question. Like my favorite Taylor Swift song? Yeah, what would you sing? I, I know the all too well 10 minute version off by heart. I'm not going to lie to you. Every word, every break, every minute of it. <laughs> it's, I play it and my sister, she's 15, she'll be like, no! And <laughs> just rip my phone out of the aux cord. But yes, no, that's probably an OG favorite. Back to December's a good second. Gets me. I love Mean. And all of her old country stuff. I love country music. Yeah, country. Of course you do, because it's storytelling. It is. We're hearing that in 83. It's gorgeous. Obviously, we have Six Foot Baby and we're dancing everywhere for it. But tell me, what else is coming up for you? Right now, we're kind of finalising my first EP project, which is really exciting. And looking at doing more live shows, I think. And also just a little bit more growth within my songwriting, I think, because before COVID, I did about four months straight of writing and I wrote 40 songs, 30 or 40 songs in a three-month period. And then COVID kind of messed with that a little bit. It gave me writer's block. It was it, I wasn't doing it as consistently and I haven't been able to develop my writing style in the way that I would my music and I really want to do that. So I think I'm going to try and get as much of that in before the end of the year, and then I'll finalise the EP. Very exciting. I'm looking Very forward to exciting. hearing it. And um, more dancing and heartbreak yes. and sad songs. Mulholland, this has been beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, listeners, Mulholland's latest single, Six Foot Baby, is gold. It's out now. You can download it and stream it on all platforms, so just do it right now because it's an amazing tune. You heard it before. Now, before we go, a final reminder that issue 12 of Women in Pop magazine with Madonna on the cover is out right now, as well as a 12-page look at Madonna's incredible career. We talked to Tate McRae, Dove Cameron, Nena Cherry, and just heaps more. So you can buy your copy now at a news agency near you or at womeninpop.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you for listening today. We shall be back with you again very soon. And until then, from myself and Mulholland, goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.